It was Charles Spurgeon who said, The soul is at home in God. And I like that. The soul is at home in God. Moses wrote in Psalm 90, verse 1, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Dwelling place. That word we talked about Sunday. My own. Hiding place. The innermost room of the house. The den. The family room. It's that place where we are most at home, or at least we are called to be most at home, and sometimes our, our religion, our thinking, our humanity, it messes it up, and, and we feel distant from God. We don't feel at home with the Lord. Well, that's not the Lord. That's us. That's us getting confused as to what home really is. It's not here. It's not this life, this planet, this island, this country. Our home is truly with the Lord and He is drawing us into that place to recognize wherever we might be in the wilderness, we have a dwelling place. We have a den where we can sit down and be in the presence of the Lord. And so it begins Psalm 90, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. And as Psalm 90 begins, you realize from Sunday that we have entered the fourth book of the Psalms. And the fourth book of the Psalms corresponds with the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible. And this section teaches us to literally number our days, Psalm 90 verse 12, that we might present to the Lord a heart of wisdom, as Moses wrote in that Psalm. Numbering our days and depending on our dwelling place. See, these are the keys of where we're going to be in the next few weeks as we are in the fourth book. Like the Israelites... In the wilderness, and we go through wilderness times, but our lives, for better or worse, our lives in the wilderness until we are fully home. But God doesn't leave us out in the wilderness wandering aimlessly. No, He has a tabernacle in the midst of His people, Jesus Christ, who said, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So even as we are in this place awaiting the glorious homecoming, we have a dwelling place right now, right here, and His name is Jesus. Now tonight, buckle up your Bible belts, because we are going to traverse Psalm 91 through Psalm 100. Yes, it's not a typo up there behind me. We're going to do these psalms. Why so many psalms all at once, as Spencer might ask me? Why can't we just take a verse at a time? Well, for one thing, because I would be dead before we got out of the psalms. We're going to go Psalm 91 through 100 for a specific reason that you're going to see in a moment. That these psalms need to be taken together. And we've been finding this out throughout all the psalms. The organization of the psalms is important. Why certain psalms are placed back to back or in groups. And Psalm 91 through 100, it takes us into an interesting place. I want to show you all of this in one sitting Tonight, and and again, I promise to have you out of here by 11. Now, Psalm 91. (laughs) Psalm 91 was probably written by Moses as Psalm 90 was. Now, we don't know for sure. There's no Hebraic inscription at the top of Psalm 91. In fact, all of the Psalms through 100 are what they call Orphonic Psalms. Orphonic, as in Psalms that don't have a parent. But we know these Psalms do have a parent. The Father. God is the writer, the author of all Scripture. But these psalms don't have a heading that tells us exactly who wrote them. So there's a little bit of guesswork involved, and it's not important, it's not going to change the meaning of the psalms. But Psalm 91 probably was written by Moses like Psalm 90. Why do we think that? Because the language is very similar. 
and because the focal point is very similar. In fact, Psalm 90 began, you've been our dwelling place. Psalm 91 begins, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. We sing that as a song here at the bridge. Psalm 91 speaks with at least a couple of voices. And there's a third voice that enters into the psalm at the end that I'll show you. But the first voice is the voice of the preacher. The voice of proclamation. And through this psalm, the the psalmist, if, if indeed it's Moses, is teaching the people. He is preaching to the people. But every now and then he shifts and he becomes not the preacher, but the praise giver. So rather than speaking about the Lord to the people, he starts speaking to the Lord in praise and adoration. So remember that, those two voices back and forth, the preacher and the praise giver. And the preacher begins in verse 1 with two names for God. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. These two names are incredibly important for our dwelling place. Because we need to know that the dwelling place that we have in the Lord is secure. Especially when the storms are blowing. And those desert wilderness winds are hot and oppressive. We need to know the shelter is going to stand up. When you go into situations like Don recently and like Ryan, I'll say recently, I was going to say currently, but cancer's gone. So, recently. When you go into those places, you want to know the house is going to stand. When I'm in the den of my home and the wind's blowing outside here on North Whidbey, I want to know the house is going to stand. But the Lord... His name, speaking of the place in which we dwell, first name, the Most High, El Elyon, which we sang in that last song. That name, El Elyon, it means the Most High. And it is a priestly praise. How do we know that? Well, to understand Scripture, we've shared before that one of the best things you can do is use the principle of first mention. You see a name, you see a word, and you want to know some some background to it or or some meat for that word, go back to the first time it's used in Scripture and you'll learn something. The Most High, El Elyon, first time it's used is Genesis 14. I'll read this to you, Genesis 14, verse 19. Abraham has just come from a marvelous victory against the kings who had had, uh, ravaged Sodom and had taken his his, his nephew Lot. And as Abraham is coming back, out from Salem, Jerusalem, comes Melchizedek. King of Salem, which means peace. King of peace. And Melchizedek Melchizedek means king of righteousness. King of righteousness, king of peace. He comes out to meet Abraham. And he says, Genesis 14, 19, Blessed be Abram of God most high. El Elyon. Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. It's a priestly praise to, to refer to God as God Most High. Why would it be priestly? Well, Melchizedek says it, and also from the perspective, the vantage point of a priest, he's saying, you know, I'm, a, I'm an, interce- an interceder here between men and, and, and people, at least in Jewish thought. I'm a go-between as a priest, but God is most high. God most high, and when the priest would call that out, it was a focus on where the true power really was. Psalm 7.17 tells us, I will give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high, El Elyon. 
So El Elyon, Most High, that's the first name. But the second name the preacher tells us here is El Shaddai. El Shaddai, the Almighty. El Shaddai, a powerful presence. Now you may have heard teaching on this that is erroneous. That some use the name El Shaddai to say it implies a femininity to God. They take the word Shaddai and cut it in half and say Shad is the root word of Shaddai. Well, Shad in the Hebrew literally means breast and is of a feminine uh, picture there. But that's not the root word of Shaddai. And if you know your Hebrew, which a lot of us don't, I don't, I just kind of pick it up as I go. But if you know your Hebrew, you would know that Shad is not the root of Shaddai. Shaddai is the root of Shaddai. Different word. What Shaddai mean? It means a devastating power. A devastating power. An almost violent power. A, a massive greatness. An awesomeness. El Shaddai is not God the mommy. It's God the Almighty. And we need to understand going in that our dwelling place, our shelter, is God Most High, God the Almighty. A shelter that will stand firm and strong and protective in the wilderness. And note this, when we put verse 1 back together, it reads, He who dwells in that shelter, that place of worship, will abide in the shadow, which is that place of His presence. And that's key there. This is a great principle. He who dwells in worship will abide in the presence. Dwell in worship. Abide in the presence. The worshiper will always be more sensitive to God's presence. One of the key ways we learn, and we talk a lot about listening to God, hearing God. How can I really learn to hear from the Lord? You worship And you worship first, not second. We get it backwards sometimes. We say, Lord, show Yourself and I will worship You. God says, worship Me and I'll show Myself. You worship Me in faith first and then you will enter into My presence. Well, that's what happens to the preacher. Suddenly, recognizing the truth, the marvelous truth of this proclamation, he turns around and he says, I will say to the Lord... My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And so the preacher becomes the praise giver. Has that ever ever happened to you? You're talking about God and you just get so excited you have to start worshiping. You have to start praising Him. Well, verse 3, continuing on. It is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings... You may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. That's pretty all-encompassing, verses 5 and 6. Notice that. The terror at night, the arrow by day, the pestilence in the dark, the destruction at noon. Covering the whole gamut. You're not going to be afraid. There is no point where you should be terrorized. He says in verse 7, A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Okay, we're back to the first voice, the preacher. And he's talking about the Lord now. 
And he's saying, look, you, you stand in that shelter. You go to that place, that dwelling place in the wilderness. And there is nothing that can take you down. There are three clues in this section, verses 3-8, through eight, that I think point us or pinpoint the intention of these verses historically. That is, what is he talking about here? Or when is he talking about here? Three things to note. Pestilence, pinions, and protection. Pestilence, pinions, and protection. Watch this. Verses 3 and 6 talk about pestilence. Pestilence. that You'll be protected from the deadly pestilence, verse 3. And of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, verse 6. This word is only used twice in all Scripture as related to Israel. It's, it's used back in, actually three times if you include here, Psalm 91. But two other times, two specific times of, of historical significance, pestilence. 2 Samuel chapter 22, 24, verse 15. And you may recall the story. David is later in life. And it's all good. And he's looking out over his vast army and he says, I want a head count. I want a head count. See, rather than numbering his days, he wanted to number his men. And we don't know exactly what it was that was so offensive to the Lord about this other than possibly David just wanted to see how great he was. And the Lord said, you shouldn't have done that, David. In fact, his counselors say, look, you got a strong army. Everything's great. Joab was saying, David, don't do this. Don't offend the Lord. But David says, no, I want my army counted. I want the men of Israel who are fighting age counted. And so the prophet comes to David and the Lord says, you've got three options as to how I'm going to punish you for this. David chooses what he thinks is the least of the three punishments. And in 2 Samuel 24:15, we're told the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time was three days, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. 70,000 men. That's awfully harsh. 70,000 fighting men. David wanted to see how strong his army was and God said to it, let's whittle down that army a bit because your strength is not in man. Your strength is in me. So the Lord sent a pestilence then. Well, could that be what's being talked about here in Psalm 91? No, I don't believe so. You go to the other end of Scripture, Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. John writes, I looked and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence. Pestilence. I believe Psalm 91, this section here especially, these few verses, are pointing to the coming tribulation. And this is encouragement for Israel in that time of tribulation that all these things, the terror by night, the arrow by day, the pestilence of darkness, the destruction at noon, these things, Israel, listen, these things can't and won't touch you. God's faithfulness to Israel will protect against these things as seen in His pinions and His protection. Pinions. Verse 4 mentions He will cover you with His pinions. We're not talking about a hen. We're not talking about the covering of a chicken coop here. We're talking about an eagle. Eagle's wings spread out. The great pinions of the Lord. And if this is Moses writing this, which we believe it is 
then we would know that Moses wrote about the opinions of the Lord before. Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. And his Israelite hearing this psalm would say, Ah, oh, the pinions of the Lord. His protection, His covering, His strength. We see this again. In the tribulation, Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly. And the woman is a picture of Israel there. That she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So pestilence falling in that time of tribulation, but the pinions of God caring for, covering, protecting His people. Pestilence, pinions, number three, protection, Protection. Verse 4 again says, His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. I like that word, bulwark. A strength there. And down in verses 7 and 8, he says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. All this going on. People falling right and left. And God saying, Israel, I'm going to protect you at that time. It will not touch you. Is there a time in God's program with Israel that they become untouchable? And the only time that I can find is in that time of tribulation where a remnant of Israel becomes literally untouchable. No matter what happens around them, they will not fall. Revelation 7 verse 3 says, do not harm the, the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. The sealed of Israel, sealed and protected that remnant in the time of tribulation. The only point in history that connects these dots, verses 3 through 8, is the tribulation period. And God saying, I will protect you then. The Lord's opinions are a shield. His promises, His protection like a bulwark for Israel. Verse 9, the preacher suddenly becomes the praise giver again. For you have made the Lord my refuge. Literally, literally written out, O Lord, you are my refuge. O Lord, you are my refuge. He turns again. Is this Moses? Perhaps. And Moses says, oh, Israel, you are going to be protected. You're going to be untouchable in that day. Oh, Lord, you are my refuge. Moses realizes the significance of this. The psalmist turns to the Lord to praise Him. This is what I would call interactive Bible study. And I encourage you to do this at home. If you're studying the Word and you're in the Word and you're excited by what you're seeing, what you're reading, pause and worship. Stop and praise the Lord. Just, thank you, Lord. This is so good. You are so good. Praise you, Lord, for what I'm learning, what I'm seeing here. For what this says about your faithfulness. Hallelujah. And I do this from time to time in my office. And I've told you my family thinks I'm nuts. Because they hear talking coming out of the closed doors of my office. They just, they don't know what I'm saying. They don't even realize often that I'm praising the Lord. But they hear my voice. You know, and I'm sure they think I'm insane. I'm sure there are other reasons for them thinking that as well. But, be that as it may, praise the Lord while you're in the Word. Walk it through, the praise giver and the preacher, back to back. And here we just see Moses, or at least the preacher, he is responding to the Lord with confident 
prays, O Lord, You are my refuge. And then he's back to being the preacher. Even the Most High, Your dwelling place or Your habitation. Speaking back to Israel in verse 10, No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent or your dwelling. I think this is our bold confidence. Israel's truly, yes, and I think verses like this, passages like this, will be incredibly significant to the remnant of Israel in the tribulation. Incredibly encouraging. Hang in there. You're protected. But listen, I think this speaks to you and to me as grafted in believers in Jesus Christ. Listen to the verse one more time. Verse 10. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Do you have confidence in that? Now, this is a little tricky. But back in verse 4, God's faithfulness is described as a shield and a bulwark. And I believe we have that protection in the Lord today. We have it right now. Just as Israel has promised this protection, we have this protection in Christ Jesus. Now I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, Rick, that sounds really good. But I know Christians who are plagued. I know believers who love the Lord, who face all kinds of things, from calamities to crises to cancer. And so how can you say that we have this this protection? No plague will come near your dwelling. Is it that, permit me if I may, Ryan, is it that Ryan just didn't have enough faith and needed to be rattled back into a place of faith? I don't think so at all. See, here's the deal, gang. I look at, at men like Eric Little. Just finished reading his biography. It's an incredible story. Eric Little, we all know him of the Chariots of Fire fame and, and the, the, the 1924 Olympics and, and winning the 440 and what a great athlete he was. And he went on to be a missionary. But few people know how exactly he died. He was in an internment camp in China where he was a missionary. But that's not what killed him. 43 years old and he died of a tumor in his brain. And we say, well then how can verses like this possibly be for us that no plague will come near your dwelling? A plague obviously hit Eric Little, and we know he was a man of great faith, so something's wrong here. Well, what about Antipas? Antipas was a follower of Jesus who loved the Lord, and because of his witness, his testimony, and you can read about his, Jesus names him in Revelation 2, talking about verse 13, 14, right in there. Antipas was martyred by being fried alive in a large brass bowl. That's how he was killed. Jesus calls Antipas my faithful witness. And what about the Apostle Paul? Life turned around. The letters to the churches, the missionary work Paul did, what a powerful man in the beginning of the church. God used him in amazing ways. And what happened to him? He's taken to Rome, in chains, in prison, where ultimately Nero sees him beheaded. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent or your dwelling. Where was their protection? Same place as Ryan's, in the dwelling place. In the dwelling place. Listen, if my dwelling is the Lord, even death cannot destroy that. We are called, gang, to a confidence. I was talking with my son last night about this. 
A confidence in the Lord that goes way beyond the flesh. A confidence in the Lord that says, hey, live or die really makes no difference for me. I have the dwelling place. I am in the dwelling place. Whether I'm here in my flesh or I'm at home with the Lord, it really makes no difference. And so, truly, no plague, no evil can befall me. If I die of some dread disease, guess what? I'm at home in the dwelling place. If God chooses to physically heal me from that disease, guess what? I'm still in the dwelling place. You cannot take me from the dwelling place. You cannot pull me out of there. I am safe in the dwelling of my God. And no evil can befall you. And no harm can destroy that. Verse 11. For He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Sound familiar? (laughs) Hey, this is a great couple of verses. And it was also, also greatly misquoted. Satan used these two verses to tempt Jesus, or at least attempt to tempt Him, in Matthew chapter 4. He took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. You remember the story, and they're up there. And Satan quotes, he says, Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, he says, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Satan is tempting Jesus. What's the temptation? For one thing, it would not be a temptation for me to stand on the pinnacle of the temple, look off, and I would not be tempted to jump. Anyone here be tempted to jump off of the temple? (laughs) I'll give it a shot. Not a temptation. But it was for Jesus. Why? Why would Satan pick that as a temptation? Because, gang, and listen, what he's saying here is, do something spectacular. Do something marvelous. And the people will see that you're Messiah. If you jump off the temple and float gently to the ground and land on your feet, the throngs will race to you. They will worship you. They'll follow you now. You don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to mess with all that stuff. Just jump and do something amazing and impressive. And the amazing and the impressive rarely are what God uses to attract people to Christ. It's usually not anything amazing at all. It's usually just one person saying, hey, want to come with me to church tonight? Or someone alone in their home who at the bottom of the barrel opens up a Bible and the Spirit leads them to the right place. It's quiet. It's simple. And and Satan is trying to get Jesus to do something messianic, huge, spectacular. But note, there's a subtle omission in Satan's quotation. As Matthew tells us, I'll tell you what, you read read verses 11 and 12 in Psalm 91, and let me read from Matthew, and note the difference. In Matthew he says, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Well, there's a whole line missing in Satan's quotation. The last part of verse 11. To guard you in all your ways. Satan leaves it out. Satan leaves that out. Why? What's going on here? The context of Psalm 91 is the way of faith. The way of faith. The way Jesus had chosen, the way God had chosen, was the way of faith. Not the way of tricks, but the way of trust. Tricks are not what God uses to draw people to the kingdom. Trust is what He uses. The jump, again, it may have been spectacular. 
It could have been impressive. It may even have been perceived as a messianic stunt, but it would have been completely out of step with trusting faith. And that was the way Jesus was walking. Satan leaves that up. We're not going to mention the whole faith issue. Satan knows how to misquote Scripture. Be aware of that. You don't think Satan knows the Bible? Oh, he doesn't know it to salvation. He doesn't understand it in the heart, but he knows the verses. And he can quote them right and left. And it's critical for us, even where the Bible is quoted, it is critical for us to take care. I like this quote. Any text without the context is just a pretext for being perplexed. And that's good. Any text taken out of context, taken out of what it's supposed to be, Satan just pulls a little bit out, doesn't mention one line there, and thinks he's going to get away with something, saying, see, it's your own scripture, Jesus, that says you'll be okay, so jump. Jesus is smarter than that. Interesting. I wonder if the devil realized how close his mishandling of the word came to spelling out his own disaster. What do you mean by that? Look at verse 13. The very next verse. You will tread upon the lion and cobra or snake. The young lion and the serpent or the dragon you will trample down. (laughs) Satan was right there as he quoted these other verses trying to trip Jesus up. He's avoiding. He didn't continue quoting at that point because who is the prowling lion? And who's the snake? And who's the dragon, the serpent? It's Satan. You will tread upon him. The old prophecy, gang, is clear and repeated yet again here. You will tread upon him. You go all the way back to what's called the Proto-Evangelicum. That is the first mention of the Gospel in Scripture. Genesis 3.15. God saying to the serpent, He will bruise you on the head. Or literally, He's going to crush your head. And you will bruise him on the heel. And though Satan did manage to be involved in the nail being driven through the feet of Jesus, the bruise on the heel, yet Jesus would crush the head of the serpent in that same time at the cross. Jesus walked all over uh, Satan that day up there on the pinnacle of the temple as it was. He, he wins. In all the temptation, He wins. And, and on that day, both Satan and Jesus quoted the Bible. But Jesus won. Why? Because only Jesus quoted Scripture determined to obey. Satan quoted Scripture in order to get his way. Jesus quoted Scripture in order to obey. That's a key. Knowing Scripture for the sake of obedience. Absolutely key. So the psalm then concludes with a third voice, and it's not the preacher, and it's not even the praise giver. As Jesus comes into the picture here, the third voice is that of the proud father. Verse 14, Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high, because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with a long life or literally length of days. I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. The voice of the proud father. That last line is literally, I will cause him to feast his eyes on my salvation. Boy, you know, this time of year, the first thing I thought of was the table at Thanksgiving. You know, to feast your eyes on the spread. Can you imagine Jesus there at 
at the end of all things as he's looking out on the table of a great feast surrounded by all the saved. Feasting his eyes on the salvation that his blood bought at Calvary. Marvelous. Now, Psalm 92. Psalm 92 is a psalm for the Sabbath. Rick, we spent half an hour on one psalm and you're going to do all the way to 100? Yeah, yeah. Get comfy. Psalm 92 is a psalm for the Sabbath. And it's been said about the Sabbath that the Jews didn't keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath kept the Jews. So significant is the Sabbath to the people of Israel that it's it's been said that's what has kept the people as a people even when they had no land to turn to. And this is a great psalm of rest and peace and you're just going to have to wait for that one until Sunday. Psalm 93. <laughs> Psalm 93. I told you we get for just we'll come back to it. <laughs> Psalm 93. Seven of the next eight psalms. That would be Psalm 93 and then Psalm 95, 96, 97, 98, 99 and 100. Seven out of the next eight are a series to be taken together as Psalms of divine coronation. The coronation of a king. But divine coronation, not earthly coronation, well, it is earthly, but it's divine. Because these psalms literally, gang, herald the coming of the earthly reign of Jesus Christ. The coming of the reign of the King of the Lord here on earth, here among us. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded Himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And we begin here at the outset of the kingdom age and what was hidden to humanity, what was hidden to mankind for so long from ancient times is now suddenly unveiled in a way it's never been unveiled before. (coughs) Kyle and Delich say he shows himself in all his majesty which rises aloft above everything. He has put this on like a garment. He is king and now too shows himself to the world In the royal robe, for the first time, God shows up to rule on earth. In all of His majesty, Jesus. We're told in verse 2 that His throne is established from of old. It's just a single word in the Hebrew, Oz. Not like Oz is in the Wizard of, but Oz, A-Z. And it literally means then. Your throne was established from then. In other words, the kingdom that's coming has been coming since ancient days. The prophet Daniel said in Daniel 7.13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. That would be Jesus. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language, not just Israel, might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And what's marvelous about this is Daniel wrote it, he received that vision when Israel was in captivity in Babylon. There was no kingdom. There was no temple wiped out, taken from the land. The northern kingdom gone, the southern kingdom gone. And Daniel's saying His kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. 
Incredible. Now these coronation psalms were probably themselves written after the Jews came back into the land. And there's a lot here in these several psalms of of that context. That they've returned from Babylon. They come back with Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and eventually Ezra and following that Nehemiah. But they came to a land, gang, when they came back as exiles or out of their exile, they came to a land that was surrounded by fearsome enemies. An ocean of enemies. Verse 3. The psalmist says, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. The floods. Huge waves. If you've seen the movie The Perfect Storm, years and years ago uh, when it came out, in fact, it was just, I guess, about 11 years ago when I first moved up here, that I went and saw that, and terrifying to see the size of the waves. Now, fishermen tell me both that that's inaccurate and that some of the pictures doesn't really happen that way, but it's more than accurate in terms of the size of the waves. That you go up on high mountains and you go down into deep valleys of wave. And it's frightening. I, I watched that movie just scared to death. I can never go out on the sea like that. Do not ever ask me to fish in Alaska. I'm out. I couldn't do it. Those of you who can, thank you for bringing home the fish. But I, I couldn't do that. The Israelites, the Jewish people, were terrified of the ocean. They had a lot of superstition about the ocean. They did not want to go out on the ocean at all. They were not a seafaring people. The Philistines were seafaring people. Phoenicians, the Greeks, the Romans, others. But not the people of Israel. If they had to move, as in the building of the temple, they had to move cedar logs down from Tyre. They just went along the coast. As close to the coast as they could, because they didn't want to get too far out in the ocean. It was frightening for them. This vast, surging thing. They might say, well, but weren't they fishermen? You know, they're on the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. Have you seen the Sea of Galilee? It's a lake. It's two miles wide by seven miles long. It is not that big. Oh, big enough to get capsized. But even on the Sea of Galilee, you remember how terrified the, the apostles were when a squall came up. Oh, the Lord, we're going to die. And that was, that was the way the Jewish people were, just afraid of the pounding waves, rising floods. It's a fearful picture that's painted here. The floods have lifted up. They've lifted up their voice. They've lifted up their pounding waves, rising higher and higher and higher. And it's a picture of being in the trough and surrounded by waves of enemies all about. Verse 4. More than the sounds of many waves, of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Holiness befits your house. Hey, we may be surrounded by massive waves of enemies, but you know what? You are God. You are on high and Holiness befits your house. What was the first project that Zerubbabel and Joshua engaged in even before Ezra came back to Jerusalem? What's the first thing they did? Remember what they built? The wall? No. The temple. I would have done it the other way around. Those of you who said the wall, that's what I would have done. Go back and build a wall. Get some protection, man. No, the temple was first. Why build a temple before you even have a wall? To reestablish the presence of God. To establish the house. To say, hey, we may not have a wall that protects us, but God is here. 
His holy temple is here. And so with the rising tide of enemies, building the temple was priority number one for the exiles in return because the Lord is mighty. The Lord is truly the bulwark as we saw in the previous psalm, or Psalm 91. So Psalm 93 kicks off the the psalms of the coronation of the great king, pointing to a hopeful and literal expectation of God's coming to the earth. Zechariah 14.9 tells us the Lord will be king over all the earth and that day the Lord will be the only one and His name the only one. Matthew 6.10, Jesus prayed it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just His will, but His kingdom as well. Right here. Now, Psalm 94. Psalm 94 is the only one in this series that is not a coronation psalm. So why is it here? Sandwiched here at the start of the series, this psalm begins, two parts to it, verses 1-7 through are a prayerful apprehension about the wickedness of man. A prayerful apprehension about the wickedness of man. Listen to this, verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the orphan and murder the, uh, and the stranger and murder the orphans. And they have said, The Lord does not see nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. The psalmist is apprehensive about all the wickedness. Why is the psalm here? Why stuck amidst the coronation psalms? Think about this. It's saying that Jesus is crowned and He's king and He's ruling and reigning. But there's some apprehension about wickedness. Really? If what, during the righteous rule of Jesus? Yes. Because even as Jesus is crowned and reigns in perfect righteousness during the millennial kingdom, you Bible students, you know, yet there will still be an undercurrent of wickedness in the heart of man. Not, not among those who are raptured. And make sure you understand that once you're caught up to be with the Lord, you're good to go. You are in your glorified body. You, are, you will serve as priestly agents for the, for the king during the millennial kingdom. You're not in that place that the rest of humanity alive at the time is in. And we know that at the end of the thousand year reign that Satan is released, the nations are deceived, and a great rebellion is achieved before Satan, death, and Hades are finally thrown into the lake of fire forever. Revelation 20, verses 7-10. through 10. There is an undercurrent of wickedness held down by the absolute perfection and righteousness of Jesus during that thousand year reign, but it's in the heart. It's still there. The sin nature, though Satan is bound, the sin nature is still there. And so it's, it's appropriately placed, Psalm 94. An apprehension, a concern. Lord, God of vengeance, there's still wickedness afoot. The psalmist, remember, writing during the time of the exiles, as most of these psalms we believe were written, is prayerfully apprehensive of the wickedness of man as he looks to this future kingdom. But, then he writes, second part, not a prayerful apprehension, but a proclamation of assurance in the righteousness of God. I love this. 
Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? I just love the way the Bible reads sometimes. I think I'm going to have to quote this at some point. I don't know when or where or to whom, but I'm saving this one for a good day. When will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? Look at the imagery. Isn't that great? He who planted the ear. God who placed the, the, the minute parts of the ear. Planted them inside the head. If he can do that, don't you think he can probably hear what's going on? He who formed the eye in all its complexity, does he not see? You know, it's said that, and this is from the Truth Project, it's said that Darwin literally got sick every time he saw a peacock. Remember that? Why? Why would he get sick seeing a peacock? Because the tail feathers of a peacock are covered with eyes. And it was the eye that blew Darwin away. He could not explain it as a a result of evolutionary process. It, It was too complex. There's just no way. And even Darwin acknowledged that. He said, I hate thinking about the eye. And when I see a peacock, it makes me sick. Why, Darwin? Because he's wrong. Because you got it wrong. And it undermines everything that you're trying to to teach here. God formed the eye, does He not see? He who chastens the nations, will He not rebuke? Even He who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man. They are a mere breath. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, out of Torah, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon His people, nor will He forsake His inheritance. Another verse there, verse 14, that you can slip into the standard of Israel. God will not forsake His people. He's not going to turn His back on His promises. They are His inheritance. Verse 15, For judgment will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will stand up for me against evildoers? The Lord might ask you. He might ask me tonight. Who will take His stand for me against those who do wickedness? Will Andrea France do it? Andrea, what do you mean? got an email from Andrea this week, and you might pray for her. She's in an interesting situation. She's teaching junior high down in Marysville and teaching at the 7th grade level and she wrote to me saying, do you have any information on Islam? Because I've been teaching PE for a while and now I'm on the team that's teaching social studies and we have a history book we're teaching and we're coming up to a unit that has three chapters on Islam. A chapter on the geography of Islam, a chapter on Muhammad himself, and the third chapter on the teachings of Islam. And she said, I don't know how to deal with this. She said, I went cover to cover in the history book. There's nothing about Christianity. There's a vague mention of the Roman Catholic Church in a couple of lines in one chapter. But Islam gets geography, gets the founder, and gets the teachings. And this is being handed to the children in middle school in Marysville. What do I do with this, she writes. And I wrote back and said... Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against those who do wickedness? And I ask you to pray for her. As a teacher in the public school, what do you do? You're being handed this stuff. How do you deal with it? It's a tough question. Pray for Andrea. 
that she might have the wisdom of God, that she might speak the truth in love, that she might be protected by the Lord and not give in to teaching all kinds of stuff that takes children, kids, teenagers away from the Father instead of to Him. Verse 17, If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have dwelt in silence. It says in the abode of silence, but isn't that just the way it is? When we're thinking with our own heads, we tend to just keep quiet. But if the Lord is our help, we have a word to speak. The Holy Spirit, in fact, gives us the right word at the right time. We'll speak what needs to be spoken, when it needs to be spoken, if we're trusting in Him. Verse 18, If I should say my foot has slipped, Your loving kindness, O Lord, Your grace will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, Your consolations delight my soul. Can a throne of destruction be allied with you, one which devises mischief by decree? They band themselves together against the life of the righteous, and they condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold, and my God the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their wickedness upon them, and will destroy them even in their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. And i got to say it, gang. I am thankful for a God of vengeance. I am. I am so thankful that I can know and be assured that God will repay every evil, will repay all wickedness. He is a God of vengeance. And He will take out His vengeance. And I'm not thankful for this because I long for the destruction of anybody. You know, I'm not a warmonger. I'm a pastor. You know, I'm not out to see people destroyed. But I am thankful God is a God of vengeance so that I don't have to be. Here's the difference. When humanity, when we take out vengeance ourselves, it hardens our hearts. It does. When we take out revenge on another person, it embitters us. It closes us up. Only God can take out vengeance and remain perfect. Because only God's vengeance is perfect. My vengeance, well, it hardens the heart. So Paul said in Romans 12, 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Psalm 94 is not a coronation psalm, but it declares a singular truth that even after the throne is established, wickedness will be lurking until it rises up after the thousand years and it is put down But this psalm is also a psalm of great encouragement, especially when you feel like you're standing alone in a world that is completely opposite of the morality and the truth and the values of Christ. Psalm 95. Psalm 95 takes us right back into the coronation, which, by the way, is where we ought to live. In the coronation. Crowning Christ as Lord, even though the days may be evil. Psalm 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and the great King above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are His also, the sea is His, for He it was He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, 
And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. You know how when you get a really tasty salad, you can't seem to get enough? Anyone else have that perspective? I'm the guy, I'm sitting there and I cannot get enough lettuce on the fork for it to satisfy. You get that bite and it tastes good and maybe there's a crouton and a little bit of tomato in there and the the, the lettuce is drenched in the dressing and you just go, oh, this is great, but you can't get enough on the fork. I find lettuce very frustrating. Salad freaks me out sometimes because I just can't get enough. I want to get it all at once. And Psalm 95 starts off with a salad. You see it? Let us sing for joy. Let us shout joyfully. Let us come before His presence. Let us shout joyfully. It starts as a salad. But I'll tell you something. And in all seriousness, as we do these things, as we sing, as we shout joyfully, as we offer thanksgiving, it always leaves us wanting more. It's just like a good salad. It leaves you hungry. You're ready for the next course. You want more. And by the way, it's good for us too. Like a good salad. Let us do these things. Sing, shout, offer thanksgiving. In fact, I love this psalm because as you look at it, it begins with a real joyful praise. Hey, let's do it, man. Let's be on our feet. Hands in the air, shouting, praising the Lord. Let's go there. And then it begins to change as we do so, as we taste the Lord and see that He is good. We get into verses 6 and 7 and suddenly now we're saying, come let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our God and Maker. The jumping, the shouting, the praise, the noise of joy now gives way to a bowing in adoration and worship. The main course comes on, and it's good. Now keep in mind the historical context here, the return of the exiles. Surrounded by hostile nations with local gods. What do you mean local gods? Well, they had gods for the valleys. And they had gods for the hills. And they had gods for the, for the sea. They had gods for everything. But our God, the psalmist writes, is God. The Lord, verse 3, is a great God and a great King above all gods. He has the depths or the valleys of the earth. He has the peaks. The sea is His. All these things that you have gods for, hey, they belong to the one and only God. Our God, who is great. And so we worship Him. He's our God. We're the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. I don't mind being called a sheep when God is the shepherd. Not at all. There is something of comfort and peace there and security and stupidity. I don't have to be so smart. I can just graze. And I'm good with that. Again, grazing. Back to the lettuce. You see how it all flows here in this psalm. (laughs) He continues. He says in verse 7, Today... If you would hear His voice, do not harden your heart or your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers tested Me. They tried Me though they had seen My work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in their heart and they do not know My ways. Therefore I swore in My anger they shall not enter into my rest. Oh, the psalm begins so joyfully and it ends so seriously. It goes from joyful shouting praise to very serious 
and, and adoring worship to a very somber place, a serious warning. God says, don't harden your heart. The scene referred to there in verse 8, don't harden your heart is at Meribah and Massa. That goes back to Exodus 17. After the people had seen the deliverance of the Lord. They had been delivered out of Egypt. Marvelous. Incredible. They had seen the plagues. And then delivered across the Red Sea. And they had seen the entire army of Pharaoh drowned in that sea. Incredible. Phenomenal. And they get to this stopping point. They get to a a campground. And there's no water there. And you know what the people say? Unbelievable. Exodus 17 verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? What? You weren't there on the shore of the sea when it crashed. You you forget about the the frogs and the flies and the dead livestock and the the firstborn. You miss all that. Is the Lord among us or not? Then God says, verse 9, Though they had seen my work, they tried me. They saw what I could do. And now they're saying, we're thirsty. God must not be here because we're thirsty. And of course, there at Meribah at Massa, God said, Moses, strike the rock. Moses struck the rock and water just gushed. And though God was frustrated with the people, He provided for the people, Moses gave the place two names. Meribah, which means the place of strife. Masa, which means the place of temptation or provocation. What is it that causes strife and provocation to take hold in our hearts? What, what is it that even in, among Christians... When we begin to strive one with another and provoke the anger of the Lord and how we... What what causes that to happen? And the word is clear on this. Hard hearts. Hard hearts. Verse 7. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Because the hard heart produces contention. The hard heart produces provocation. People cry out, I want to hear you, Lord. I want to hear the Lord. But going back to what we said earlier, if there is no intention to obey, why should we expect the Lord to speak? If the heart is hard, the ability to hear the Lord speak requires a soft heart. A heart that is open to obedience. And obedience is the prerequisite for entering into rest. Look at verse 11. Therefore, Because of these hard hearts. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. Obedience is the prerequisite. If you want to enter the place of rest, you've got to obey. Don't misunderstand. It is not obedience that purchases salvation. Except for the obedience of Christ. His grace purchases your salvation. But if you want to get out of the place of striving and enter into the place of rest, here's how you do it. Obey the Lord. Obey Him. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 4.6, Since it remains for some to enter the rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, this is the day for you to obey. Not yesterday. Not last year when you blew it. Not five years ago when you didn't know the Lord. Today is the day to obey. That's something to say every morning when you wake up. Today is the day to obey. 
Because if you obey the Lord, you will enter into the place of rest in the Lord. By the way, side note, you may have noticed this in Hebrews 4, 7. He quotes, he says, Today, saying through David, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The only place in all the Psalms is right here. So the quote in Hebrews is from right here. So does that mean that David wrote Psalm 95? Possibly, but probably not. Well, then why did the Hebrew writer say through David? Because all the Psalms were ascribed to David. Because when the Psalms were referred to, often they would say, and David said, referring to the Psalms as a bulk altogether. But it could be David. I guess that's possible. The day of rest, however, is coming. And the obedient will hear when he calls because they have soft hearts open to the Lord. Psalm 96. Psalm 96 now continues the coronation. This whole thing, remember, a great coronation of the king coming into his kingdom. And Psalm 96 begins with a call to worship. Verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations. That word nations is goyim, the heathen, the non-Jewish people. Tell of His glory there as well. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. A call to worship. The exiles returning. And they're surrounded by these nations that had their, their local gods and they also had their pop idols. We have our American idols. They have their popular idols. And note this, I think it's interesting in verse 5, the Hebrew word for idols there is elil. Elil, what does that mean? It means things of naught. Things of worthlessness. Things of no value. That's the way God looks at an idol. It has absolutely no value to it whatsoever. So there's a call to worship the one and true God. Secondly, we're giving the context of worship. Verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. So we move from the call to worship now to the context of worship. What do you mean? Quickly, the psalmist right here gives the ABCs of praise. The ABCs of praise. First, ascribe glory to the Lord. Ascribe glory to the Lord. Focus the gathering on the glory of the Lord. We've talked about this recently. I won't hammer this out much more tonight. But just to say this, remember when we come into this place, the primary reason for our gathering is worship. First and foremost, that's got to be our primary calling when we gather as a people. Worshiping the Lord first. Ascribing glory and honor to the Lord first. And then we do the Word. And then we fellowship. And we share in our lives together and we pray. But glory to the Lord first and foremost. Ascribe glory. Secondly, V. Bring an offering. Bring an offering. Verse 8 says, Bring an offering and come into His courts. And you know, Israelite worship always included offerings. In fact, it was the centerpiece of the worship, the offerings and sacrifices that were brought. This specifically is bring a meal offering to the Lord. Did you know that your giving is an act of worship? 
when you drop money in the box, when you write out a check and send it to the work of the Lord in the kingdom, when you give, it is worship. We miss this. We don't look at it this way as much anymore. In earlier days, perhaps, there was more of an understanding that as the plate was passed, or the bag was passed, that people were in the act of worship. And we need to understand something here. Our offering, our giving, worships God because it expresses faith. Whatever I hand to the Lord, I'm trusting Him to take care, to provide for the rest. It expresses faith. Hebrews 11.4 tells us, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, Abel still speaks. What? Well, what does Abel say? When you bring your offering, trust in the provision of the Lord. When you bring an offering, trust God. The difference between Abel's and Cain's offering wasn't lamb versus fruit. It was the content. Abel brought the best of the best that he had and gave that first to the Lord, trusting that the Lord was going to take care of the rest. Cain threw some fruits and veggies on a plate and said, there you go, God. I had some leftovers. Thought I'd bring that for you. I see in it the difference between those who say, when they sit down to write out their bills each month, they say, okay, God first, and then with what's left, I'll pay my bills. As opposed to those who pay the bills, get down to the bottom and go, well, we have a little left. I guess we can give some to God. Listen, the correlation of worship and tithing is simply this. It acknowledges, when I tithe, when I give, when I trust my money to the Lord, it acknowledges this one thing, that God is a God of grace and a God of generosity and He's going to take care of the needs. When you give, your giving is an act of worship. So ascribe glory to the Lord. Bring an offering. Come dressed appropriately. ABCs. Come dressed appropriately. Hmm. (laughs) What do you mean, Rick? I'm not talking about your clothes. We're in a barn on Whidbey Island, okay? You're cool. What I'm talking about here is adorn yourself in praise. The word here in attire. He says, worship the Lord, verse 9, in holy attire. The word attire is hadara. Hadara in the Hebrew means honor. Worship in holy honor. Attire yourself in honor, in praise, in beauty. Psalm 33 verse 1. Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. It looks good on you. Worship looks good on you. Psalm 147 verse 1. Praise the Lord for it's good to sing praises to our God. And it is pleasant, and praise is becoming. Verse 10, going on. So the call to worship, the content of worship. Number 3, verse 10, the continuance of worship. Say among the nations the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Say it among the nations, the continuance of worship. Don't just worship on Sunday. Don't just worship in the sanctuary on a Wednesday night. Speak it out among the nations. Take your worship with you. Let people hear you praising the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 10.27, What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear, whispered in your ear, proclaim it upon the housetops. And so this coronation psalm, 
gives us a call to worship, the content of worship, the continuance of worship, and finally, coming worship. Coming worship. Verse 11. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult and all that are in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. For He is coming. (laughs) He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in His faithfulness. Can you imagine? I mean, can you even imagine when the very creation sings for joy at the coming of the Lord? The psalmist says the trees are going to sing. Is that literal? Jesus said the rocks are going to cry out. And if a rock can cry out, a tree can sing. But it's going to be awesome when He comes. The praise, the glory, it's not just going to be coming from us. It's going to just just flow out of the earth in worship to the Father. Amazing. Paul said in Romans 8.19, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation can't wait. Just aching for this to happen. Psalm 97. Psalm 97. Continuing on the coronation. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Hey, Whidbey Island, be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries round about. His lightning lit up the world the earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord and the presence of the Lord at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare His righteousness and all the peoples have seen His glory. Wow, you read that and you've got to ask, when did that happen? It hasn't. Now, it, it could be a picturesque allusion to God leading the children of Israel out of bondage and His clouds and thick darkness around Him and fire going out before Him, taking up the enemy and lightnings and the earth trembling. The mountains didn't melt like wax at that time. And the presence of the Lord was not seen in the whole earth or understood there. All the peoples didn't see His glory. This speaks again of a later date, a prophetic certainty. He's coming. He will judge. He will reign. And all the earth, all people will see His glory. Verse 7, Let those be ashamed who serve graven images. You know, in the day that, that mankind actually sees the Lord, the very idea of worshiping something made of wood or stone will be completely ridiculous. It'll just be stupid. Who worships idols today? Well, we have all kinds of images. Images of saints. Images of Mary and Joseph. Images throughout the world that people venerate and worship. I've told you before, there's a statue of Peter in St. Peter's Square that doesn't have toes anymore because of all the people kissing its feet. And when we see Jesus, the wonder and splendor of who He is, there will be a great amount of shame among all those who ever worshipped something carved by the hands of men. Worship Him, all you gods. The word there is Elohim. And we've seen that also applies to mighty ones or, or great ones or judges. Zion heard this and was glad and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments. O Lord, finally, finally, Israel vindicated. Finally. 
For you are the Lord Most High over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserve the souls of His godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous. What does that mean? It means light will grow. God sows His light into you and His light grows up out of you. And gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones. Give thanks to His holy name. As Psalm 97 continues the coronation, note this one thing. If you love the Lord, two simple things you are called to do. Hate evil and be glad. Hate evil, verse 10. Be glad, verse 12. It's very simple. I love stuff like that because I can track it so easily. Hate evil, be glad. I can do that. We are called to hate. If you love the Lord, you are called to hate evil, wickedness. That which destroys and hurts people, violates the gracious love of the Lord. Hate evil. Be glad. And here's the thing. In the world in which we live, it is far too easy, even as Christians, just to turn a blind eye and let it go. Just to remain quiet, not to say anything. But gang, we will not know true gladness without righteousness. Which is why you have to hate evil to be glad. Gladness begins to flood into our hearts when we realize how ugly and disgusting wickedness is and we run away from it rather than to it. And the more you hate evil, the more gladness fills the heart because righteousness brings about gladness. Holiness brings about happiness. These things are what make a person glad. Psalm 98 verse 1. You guys are doing really well. Psalm 98 verse 1 I will sing to the Lord a new song for He's done wonderful things His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for Him The Lord has made known His salvation Yeah, and His name is Jesus He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations He has remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. You see the coronation going on? Here comes the King. He's remembered. His faithfulness is seen. We're recognizing all that He said He would do. He's done it. He's here now. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah to the King. And so we see as this psalm opens up, man, sing to the Lord for a great salvation. How great a salvation. God's salvation is so great, listen, so great that it extends to all people of all time. Now, I'm not being universalist here, except that the offer of God's salvation is universal. God's offer of salvation goes out to everyone. There's not a single person on the face of the planet who ever does not have or did not have the offer of of God's salvation. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, that is, hate evil, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Be glad. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. There is only one reason why anyone in history is ever lost. And it's because they reject the offer, the offer of salvation. Because salvation goes out to everyone. 
And this is where I depart from Calvinism wholeheartedly. I do not believe, and Scripture does not teach, that a certain segment of people are predestined to be saved and a certain segment of people are predestined to be condemned. As Paul wrote, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. For God, Jesus said, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Sing to the Lord for a great salvation. Shout to the Lord in a gathering celebration. Verse 4, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth, sing for joy, sing praises, sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. And with the lyre and the sound of melody, with the trumpets and the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Now I grew up in an a cappella church. And for reasons I won't go into, but ignore Paul's charge in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. You see, the church I grew up in said, it's not in the New Testament. Instrumental worship is not in the New Testament, therefore we have to sing a cappella. Well, I shared before, they're going to have a little bit of trouble when Gabriel comes blowing the trumpet. But that aside... Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 both say to worship, to lift up the Lord in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Which we've looked at before. Psalms from the Greek word salo, to pluck. Lift up the Lord with plucking. And he's not talking chickens. You pluck an instrument like the lyre or the harp. You blow the trumpet. And the Psalms, the book of praises that we're told in the New Testament to worship with, tell us to strike the chord, blow the horn. And that's what we do. And it's what we're going to continue to do, I believe, on into eternity. Sing to the Lord for a great salvation. Shout to the Lord in a gathering celebration. Number three, surge to the Lord with a glorious expectation. Like waves of the sea surging up. Watch this, verse 7. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. You ever hear rivers clap? They do. They go flying over a rock and you see the waters come together and go, you know. Rivers will clap. And this, this is a great picture. Let the rivers clap their hands. The mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the earth with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Again, repeated as in the previous psalm that we just read. Marvelous Psalm 98. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Joy to the world. He's coming. And by the way, Psalm 98 was the psalm that inspired Isaac Watts to write that classic hymn, Joy to the World. Which, as I've told you before, is not a Christmas song. We sing it at Christmas, we limit it to Christmas, but it's not a Christmas carol, it's a coronation carol. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room, and heaven and nature sing. Psalm 98, that's where it came from. Psalm 99, and now the coronation gets very serious. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble, He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Or literally, let the earth stagger. Let the earth stagger. What does it mean, He's enthroned above the cherubim? Bible students, what's the picture that immediately comes to mind when we say He's enthroned above the cherubim? 
Ark of the Covenant. Good. So it's the Ark, right? The mercy seat on the Ark. No, it's not. <laughs> That's the first thing you think of, but we have to remember this. The Ark of the Covenant. Remember the context, what's going on. The Ark, the Ark was simply part of an earthly portrait of a heavenly reality. And these are coronation songs speaking of the coming of Jesus and the glorious rule and reign of Jesus. And now speaking of the one who is enthroned above the cherubim, not as a picture, but literally, literally enthroned above the cherubim. The portrait is amazing. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. Before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, four, All four full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second like a calf and the third had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. John sees this and goes, Oh, got to write that down. This is wild. And the four living creatures, John says, each one of them having six wings full of eyes around him within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now here's the thing. Ezekiel saw the same cherubim that John saw. John saw four cherubim, eagle face, man face, you know, the four faces. Ezekiel saw the cherubim from more than one angle and realized something stunning, that each cherubim had all four faces. You think John was wild? Check this out. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 5. This was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof and they gleamed like burnished bronze. And under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for their faces, the wings touched And the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another, and their faces did not turn when they moved. Of course, they wouldn't have to, because if you have a face here and a face here, and you go that way, you're already looking that way. Right? If you go that way, well, you're already looking that way. You don't have to turn your head, because you're already facing that way. Everywhere you go, you're already facing that way. This is freaky. And he goes on, he says, As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right, and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being, and two covering their bodies, and each went straight forward. And wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went, because remember, they're already facing that way. I read this to remind you of something amazing. As this psalm begins, He is enthroned above the cherubim. The cherubim are awesome. Frightful. Terrible. Wonderful. Amazing. And actual creatures. Angelic beings. The psalmist says, they are nothing compared to God. He's enthroned above them. Verse 2, The Lord is great in Zion. And He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. Holy, meaning separate, completely other. You think the cherubim are different? You think they're unique? God is completely holy, separate. Nobody like Him. Verse 4. The strength of the King loves justice. You've established equity. 
You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He, he writes yet again. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. And Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. Interesting. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, what did they all three have in common? They were all three intercessors for Israel. Moses, interceding for the people all the time. Aaron, the first high priest, as an intercessor. Samuel, an intercessor for Israel. And as they interceded, God forgave. But, though God forgave, there were still ramifications for their sin. And it's an important principle we have talked about. Just because you're forgiven doesn't mean the ramifications, doesn't mean the fallout won't still be there. Yes, you're forgiven. Yes, you have grace. Yes, you are walking with the Lord and will be in all eternity, but there may yet be repercussions for old sin choices. It's not because God would punish you, it's because, well, be ye not deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. That's why God hates sin so much. He knows it will come back to bite you. There are ramifications of it. But but the intercessors would intercede and forgiveness was offered. It just doesn't always negate the fallout. Watch this verse 7. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept His testimonies and the statute that He gave them. Verse 8. O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them and yet an avenger of their deeds. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily negate fallout. Our sin choices play out, though we're forgiven. But there's good news because we have a different intercessor. Not a Moses who was capable of sin. Not an Aaron who did sin. Not a Samuel who also would sin. We have a perfect intercessor in Jesus Christ. Not a high priest, Hebrews 4.15, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore He is also able to save those forever who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, our intercessor. So as the King comes, we're reminded that He has been interceding for us all along. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill. For holy is the Lord our God. The Bible tells us that during the glorious reign of Jesus Christ, all the nations will flow to His holy hill, to Zion, to worship the crowned King. Psalm 100, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good, His loving kindness is everlasting, and His faithfulness to all generations. Amen. The Coronation Psalms. All speaking of that glorious time. Songs for the King, having entered into His fully recognized authority over all the earth. Praise the Lord. Father, we praise You. Lord, and as we walk through this extent of of the Psalms, this coronation process, Father, we've taken a bit of time tonight to do that. 
Lord, we long for the day when it will take days, weeks, months, years to fully worship and recognize You as King. Jesus, give us the strength to crown You King in our lives now as we look forward to Your coronation then. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.